Today is uh, lesson three as we continue to make our way through unlocking the Bible. Today is going to be uh, lesson three of um, our teaching. And so we're going to get right into that because I'm finding over the last couple of weeks that I really need every moment I can. So I can't. I'd love to wait for more to get here because I'm sure they're on their way, but to make sure that we're able to get as much in as we can, we're going to begin. So if we take a moment, if you would, it's right where you're sitting, if you would lift your hands to the Lord and let's ask the Lord to help us today. Ask His presence to be with us. Father, we come to you today. We give you all the praise and glory and the honor and the thanks. We speak your presence to be in this place, to touch our minds. Let the spirit of revelation be upon us today. Anoint our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to receive from you today. Touch our hearts, Lord. Let us know you and find you in a greater way. We speak all these things. We proclaim all these things. In Jesus' name, praise God. Amen. A couple of notes here, if you would, before we get really into this. And uh, just for you to be aware of. And I will mention this a little later on as more get here to remind them. We, we have notes that will be available at the end of our Unlocking the Bible session this morning. They will be available for the 15 minutes before the start of the 11 a.m. worship time. Uh, so if you'd like notes that go along with today's lesson, you will be able to get those in the back when you are done. Once we begin at 11 o'clock, we're going to put them away because we really want to make them available to those who have come to Unlocking the Bible. And uh, those who are coming in late, um, they're going to have to watch the session before they're able to receive the notes. So we will have the notes available for you. And then notes from week one and week two will be available um, as well. There's 16 pages of notes for today. And there's more for week two and week one. So you're getting a good solid amount of notes that if you would like to take with you, uh, these are the student versions. Those of you, after we're done this over the next couple of months, that are going to go further in unlocking the Bible and are going to go into the teaching program, you'll be able to get a different set of notes, and that's going to be the teacher set. So we're working through this step by step, but just a little note on that um, to help you out. So we spent the first couple of weeks, and we'll continue this, building on a foundation of understanding sort of the principles and the patterns of God and who God is and how God operates. Um, some desire to jump sort of in the middle, but it's really hard to understand how we get to a place that uh, we will get to farther on if we don't build a solid foundation. So we're continuing to build a foundation and see how God operated from the very beginning, first of all, to really see that God does not change. God is truly the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God does not change. That's the biggest thing we all have to understand. And that's probably the biggest point to understanding and studying the Bible. The critics of the Bible say, well, 
That book was written thousands of years ago and the, and, and the stories and the, and the culture is antiquated. Yes, there are things in the Bible that were dealing with a particular culture that the Bible was written on. However, the Bible explains to us and gives us an insight into the nature of who God is. And because God does not change, we can see through the principles of God that He begins to establish certain patterns of dealing with man that are still true today. This goes back to something that the Lord began to deal with me about as I uh, progressed in my walk with God, even though I grew up in the church and I progressed in trying to become a student of the Word of God and in that quest to become a student and sort of looking at the Word of God in a fresh light, not that I didn't believe what we taught growing up, but I came to a very much of a crisis point in my life that uh, I had to go to God and say, God, I just want to know what your word says, no matter who's right, no matter who's wrong. I was at the point in my life that I was willing to walk away from what I was grown up in if that wasn't what the word of God said. And that was not a reflection on my father. That wasn't a reflection on the church that I was a part of. That was just a fact of it had to be mine. It couldn't be somebody else's. You've got to get the Word of God for you. You can't get the Word of God because someone else has it. You've got to find it for you. That's the whole reason why we're doing all this is it's got to be yours. You've got to take ownership of your faith. You can't borrow other people's faith. You've got to take ownership of your faith. And so in this quest and some things I was struggling with and the question I came to God with, and again, I'm not saying this is the answer for everybody, but this is the Lord, the answer the Lord gave me. And I came to God and I sincerely asked God, how do I know if I'm right? I wanted to know that. That was a big concern for me. How do I know if what I'm reading and believing is the truth? How do I know that I'm not just going down the wrong trail and then I'm going to get to the end and realize, man, I took a wrong turn somewhere and I don't even remember where I took the turn at. That was a huge concern to me. Because i I got to be honest, I know a lot of people that are very sincere and study the Word of God, but I've watched them. They've made errors in their ways. And I thought, man, I don't want to be that way. And I'm not reflecting on their sincerity at all. I'm just simply saying... That was my big concern. I'm thinking, how do I know I'm right? And so the Lord began to deal with me. The Lord began to share with me. And and the best way I could put it is, is this, is that I began to look at the Bible with old eyes. You say, what do you mean by looking at the Bible with old eyes? I'm not talking about the age of my eyes. I didn't ask the Lord to uh, expand my ears but I began to look at the Bible through old eyes. What's that mean? I began to look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'm getting to a point because some of the stuff we're going to talk about here this morning, you need to understand these principles because it's important why we're studying some of this stuff that seems to have no relevance to our life today. And that is this. Let's go back to the very beginning. We talked about it. How many books in the Old Testament? There we go. Come on. There we go. Woo! Praise God. 39 in the old. How many in the new? 
27, so a total of 66. So I, I explain it like this, and I've used this before, and some of you remember me using this. But that's 66 lenses to get the full picture of who God is. Have you ever gone? I'm not, I, haven't, I, haven't, I don't wear glasses, but I've gone and watched my wife take an eye test, and they put you on that eye machine, and they do all the different kind of lenses and add different things, determining how much you need to be able to see clearly. And all they have to do is remove one lens, and just removing one lens can make a sharp image a little blurry. So how do I know I'm seeing God as clearly as he is intended to see? I've got to look at God through all 66 lenses. So that's why it's very dangerous for people who jump into the middle of the word of God and say, well, I don't need Genesis. I don't need, I don't need Exodus. I don't need all those books. And they're all, all those books are just Genesis. All the, who wants to read Malachi? Who wants to read Habakkuk? Who wants to read Zephaniah? I don't need all those old books. I want to start Matthew because that's where Jesus. Well, the problem is you're jumping in the middle and you're only getting 27 lenses. And so when you get to the end of your 27th lens, you're going to think you see God clearly, but you've neglected 39 more pictures of who God is. And so you can get an image you think is clear, but it's not the clarity of who God is. And the other part is, here's this. If you take binoculars and you look through this way, everything that's far away seems very close. But if you take those same binoculars and you flip it, it feels like what you're looking at is so far away. When you look at the Bible from the new to the old, it seems like Genesis is way out there and no relevance. But when you look at it from Genesis to Revelation, you see that really God has orchestrated such a beautifully crafted and woven textual story of who he is. And so that's why we are starting where we've started and we'll continue to build upon this is because we want to see God in the full 66 lenses of the word of God. So we're going to talk today, we talked about last week, the creation story and the fall of man with Adam and Eve. And what that, not, not just from creation as the scientific part of creation, that's a whole nother deal for a whole nother day and can be debated. We talked about creation because what did creation tell us about God? And then we also talked about what man did in the garden and how God responded to that. So we're going to go a little farther today and we're going to begin to talk about a little bit of Cain and Abel and how God deals with man and how Cain and Abel is relevant to us today and talk about God's mercy and how God began to show us mercy and then we'll get into a little bit of some more characters you find in the beginning of the Bible, uh, Seth and Enoch, but more importantly Noah and the ark and what that has to do with me today. What is the ark? have to do with me today? Is it just simply, wow. I feel like, wow, where are the angelic voices? Uh, What does the ark have to do with me today? Why does a boat with animals on it, how does that pertain to my life today? And we'll get to that today. So let's look at, for a moment here, a comparison. Last week we spent a lot of time Uh, In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're moving into Genesis 4. Let's take a quick comparison of the difference between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Genesis 3 talks about the beginning of sin. Genesis 4 talks about the progression and the fruit of sin. 
Genesis 3 talks about sin being in the first family with Adam and Eve. And then we talk about in Genesis 4 how that sin begins to spread to the family of man. Genesis 3 talked about sinning against God. We find in Genesis 4 that there began to be sin against the fellow, your fellow man. And then finally, in Genesis 3, we find that enmity against God or, or, or the conflict between God is prophesied. But in Genesis 4, we begin to see it played out on a real-life stage. We find in Genesis 4, chapter 1, it reads this way, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and he said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Notice when Cain was born, Adam spoke and said, this was, a, this was a child of God. Then she bore again, this time his brother was Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the till of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn. Notice that, that's not a, a throwaway statement there. Notice that, verse 4. Abel also brought the, what's that next word? Firstborn. That is not a mistake. And we'll tell you why in just a moment, why that was not a throwaway word. That word has extremely great significance to the events that are going to take place in just a moment as we continue reading. That word right there gives us insight into how these events unfold. The firstborn of his flock, and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering. And he did not respect Cain. And his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. The word Cain means to be acquired or possess. It could be that Eve believed that she had acquired the child. Who would fulfill the promises of Genesis Chapter 3, verse 15. The name Abel, on the other hand, means breath or vapor. Perhaps he was named as such due to the awareness of feeling of sort of the nature of man's life. Breath. We understand in the comparison of the two jobs they had. Cain was a farmer, tiller of the ground. Abel was a, was a, was a herdsman, a sheep, a, a, a shepherd. And we find that Cain and Abel bring two different offerings to God. And God rejects one and accepts the other. It seems at first glance that's a little unfair. At first glance it seems like God's being a little harsh. Wait a minute God, they both brought offerings. Doesn't, don't you want us to bring something to you? And God, why did you accept one and you reject it? That seems like God's being a little unfair. However, if you take a moment and we compare the two offerings we begin to see that God, we find this later on in the story of David and Goliath when we talked about King David. What is the, what's one of the principles we find to learn about God? God does not look at the outward. God does what? Looks at the inward man. And we begin to find out, even in Cain and Abel, the pattern by which God does not simply look at your actions, but God's more concerned about where your heart is. There's a quote that I've used many times. I've, I've paraphrased it. I believe the original quote was by Wolf, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I've tweaked it a little bit, and it simply is this. It's not wherein you stand, but the direction in which you are facing. I believe we get so concerned about where we are that we forget the direction we're facing. 
And God's more concerned about what direction you're facing than where you are. God can take you from here to here in a moment. But you've got to be pointing in the right direction. And so we begin to see in this very moment as we begin to compare the two offerings that God is more concerned about your heart than your actions. Because you can mask your heart through your actions, but God's not fooled by it, folks. I've used this illustration before, and I use it again, but I can walk up to you today and look you in the face and smile and say, I love you, and go right across your face. And you can look at me like, how did you do that? And I can say, but I told you I loved you. And you would say, yeah, but your actions don't show that. But on the other hand, I could come up to you today, give you this big old hug. I love you. I love you. You just mean so much to me. And never, ever do anything in my life to show that love. And you know, come on, you, you know when someone tells you something and they don't mean it. I want to ask you to raise your hand. But we've all been there where someone's told us something and you knew as they're saying that, they don't believe that. They're just trying to tell me what they want, want me to hear. We do that to God. Oh, God, I need you so much. God, I want you so much. As if somehow we're going to fool God. And God says, wait a minute. You're saying that with your mouth, but are you showing it with your heart? Don't forget, God's not fooled. He is pretty smart. So look at this. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith, Abel... Offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, through it, began to deal with, begin, and through it, he began, he, be, he being dead, still speaks. Whew, I'll get there in a minute. What is, what is Abel being dead, still speaking? What is he telling us? Hebrews said he's been dead, but he's still talking. What is Abel telling us? Well, here's some things Abel did. Abel brought a God-directed offering. He approached God the, per- the, per- the prescribed way. What is the prescribed way? We read it. What was that word? Firstborn. Abel's offering was more excellent. It was a greater quality than Cain's. Abel's offering revealed his heart more than his actions. Now the Bible doesn't go into specifically what Abel, what Cain brought. We don't know if he brought potatoes or radishes or broccoli. or We don't know what he brought. But the Bible gives us insight into what the Cain brought. And we know he brought the firstborn, meaning he brought his best. He gave God something that cost him the most. He gave God something that mattered to him. His offering was God created. Cain's offering was man created. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us. 1 John 3.12 Not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his works were evil and his brother's brother's righteousness. Cain did not come to God the prescribed way. He brought an offering God based on his own terms. 
man-created ways of worshiping God are considered to be evil. So what does that mean? That means that Abel came to God on God's terms, bringing God his best. Abel did. Cain came to God, offering God things based on his own terms. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter how intelligent you think you are today, you can't come to God and write the terms. You've got to come to God the way God prescribes to. That's a problem right there. It's, it's an issue. And you know what? Here's the deal. Today, you don't go out to your backyard and look for your best sheep and bring it today and say, let's have a sacrifice down here and let's have all our firstborns. We don't do that anymore. So is that oh, is that no good anymore? Is that is that is that is this scripture relevant? No. You know what the Bible says? Bring the sacrifice of praise. What does that mean? That brings I've got to bring myself and my will, and my will is the thing I lay before God and give him a sacrifice. Because if I don't lay my will down and what I want, and it's not what God wants, I'm really a cane more than I am an able. So we understand. That the principle of God is God desires us to approach Him on His terms. Very simple. God desires to approach. God's not into curtailing the terms to fit your needs where you are so that, well, you, you, know, you don't want to do this. Well, I, here, I'll give you. you know, God doesn't give you a menu, Brother Jolin. Would be nice, right? They come to church and say, well, here's the menu. You can choose what you want from God. God says, here's what I'm willing to do it. Take it or leave it. Now, we understand grace and mercy and love. God is very compassionate. God loves you like you are. God's not asking you to change to earn his approval. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying, though, is God's very clear that he has a way of dealing with things. So watch this, though. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? This is after this whole debacle with the offerings. And Cain is obviously watching Abel, and he noticed that he's getting a blessing, and he's watching his offering, and knowing he's not getting the same thing, and he got mad. And so the Bible says that the Lord came to Cain and said, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it's a desire for you, but you should rule over it. When God confronted Cain, he gave an opportunity to recover. God is always going to give you an exit ramp. God is always going to give you an out. In fact, you know the scripture, and I go to this, we're, we're deviating for a moment, but I'll come back through here. Is You know the scripture that people say is in the Bible, but it's really not in the Bible? And that is, people say, the Bible says, God will not put on me more than I could bear. Slight problem, that's actually not in the Bible. Sounds really good. Oh, I'm going to make it through, because you know God told me he'd never put anything on me more than I could bear. Eek, that's wrong. In fact, God is trying to put more on you you can bear, because he's trying to prove to you you can't do it. So if you're holding on to that promise, good luck on that. Because you're holding on to something God never intended. Because you know what? It's like, God will never put on me more than I can bear. That's like saying, God, I got this. <laughs> I'm okay. As long as you keep the roof over my head, I'll, I'll, I'll run my own life. 
Because you told me you wouldn't let the roof collapse. God's trying to tell you he's going to make you feel like the roof is caving in. So you have no, no other way but to come to that Savior and say, I need you. However, that's not what the scripture says. But the, the, where they get the term and why they use that scripture is the Bible talks about God will never give, there will never be a temptation that comes to your life that doesn't have a way of escape. No temptation in your life comes to you without a way of escape. And God always gives us in our life, and the Bible talks about this, a space of grace, a space of repentance. God's desire is to cover, not to reveal. God only reveals as his last final act of mercy in our lives. God wants to cover you, not to expose you. I got to be honest with you. There are things in my life. And I don't say this because I'm up here. I'm saying this legitly as sincere as I can. There are things in my life I hope no one ever finds out about. Remember, God, we had this deal, right? I hope that's the case. I hope. There's some things, whoo, praise the Lord. I hope we never find out about. Because you know what? Not because I'm trying to hide it, because you know what? I don't want those things exposed. I don't want my, mix, my mistakes exposed. And God doesn't want it either. God's desires to cover your past. God's desires to cover your mistakes. God's desires to cover you under his blood and his innocence. God's not into exposing you, embarrassing you. Let's bring you up here in front of me. Okay, give us your five sins this week. That's not what it's about. God's desires to cover you. Your sin is between you and God. Only God can forgive sin. So we find that before God passes judgment, he always extends mercy. Wait a minute. How did God extend mercy to Cain? God gave Cain mercy by giving him an opportunity to change his offering. Wait a minute. He gave an opportunity. How did he give an opportunity? He said to him, if you do well, it'd be accepted. Meaning, you need to go back to the drawing board and realize you didn't come to me the right way. However, the problem is, Cain didn't respond very well to this. Because Cain had a conversation with God, and then we find in verse number 8 of chapter 4, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Wait a minute. Notice this. Little principle here. It's not a part of unlocking the Bible. Just help somebody today. God talked to Cain, but Cain went and talked to Abel. Why didn't Cain talk back to God? God spoke to Cain, but yet Cain went to find somebody else to talk to. find a lot of times people don't really want the answer. They just want to go find somebody that can agree with where they are. Because you know what? God spoke to Cain. Cain should have gone back to God and said, okay, God, what do I need to do to correct this? But in my opinion, the Bible says, and Cain went and talked to Abel. What did he went and talk to Abel about? Obviously, it wasn't a good conversation because the conversation escalated to the fact he got so mad, he killed his brother. He got mad. And then what happens? 
Verse 9. Then the Lord God came back to Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? And notice this. He did not respond to God's first question, but he's talking to God now. Too late. Where's your brother? I love this response, as if he's somehow going to fool God. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10 says, And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out for me of the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Will you till the ground? It shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. I love the fact now he's trying to get out of it. God gave him an opportunity the very first time. He gave him an exit ramp. It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to go this way. He gave him an opportunity. But his hardness of heart and his stubborn ways and his own pride and will made him go a totally different direction. And now he's saying, wait a minute, time out, God. I can't do this. Wait a minute. God gave you an opportunity. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have done. You have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on earth. And it, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. So we find it several things here. Cain and his efforts were cursed. Cain would have Cain ended up becoming a fugitive. Cain did not respond to the judgment of God with remorse, but rather with complaint. Cain received a mark to protect him from any person who would try to kill him, but Cain went out of the presence of God. Notice what does this kind of symbolize to us a little bit? That he was punished and separated from God, but yet he didn't die. What does that kind of represent to us? We find that a little later in Scripture when the Bible talks about the punishment for those who reject God is the eternal punishment where you don't die. It would have been easier, really, for Cain to have been killed, put out of his ministry, misery. But God said, don't kill him. He's going to live. It would be nice, honestly, if at the end of our lives, if we have rejected God, that at that time our life were over and we would cease to exist. But we understand the Bible very much teaches the fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell and there is no escape from this. So we begin to find the beginning of that principle. So let's go a little farther. We're beginning to see how God's doing things. We're beginning to see how God is beginning to manifest himself and dealing with man's problems. We, we find that even though some would say that God is very hard and God is very stern, and there are, very, there are many times in the Old Testament where God was very strong, very strong, swift to judgment. However, if you go deeper, you find that God always gives us a way out. As a parent, I try to do that with my kids. Very rarely do I respond with punishment the very first time that they've done something unless pre-warned. 
And as a parent, most of the time you say, if you do that again, here's what's going to happen. Usually, I don't walk up to my child the very first time they make a mistake and punish them. And they say, Dad, what do I do? Well, you should have known. But, Dad, you never told me. So what do I do? Son, especially my son. That was just a, a Freudian slip. It just comes out, son. If you have, I get, this, is, this, is, this is the conversation in my house most days. If you shoot that gun one more time at somebody, he's got, he's a, he's got these Nerf guns. I feel like my house is a war zone half the time. Bullets flying everywhere. I'm ducking under them. It's terrible. I said, son, if you shoot that one more time at somebody or near somebody, you're going to lose it. Sure enough, being the wonderful cherub and angel of the Lord he is, next thing you know, a little later, I hear this scream of desperation from one of his fallen sisters. Ah! And you know what? Son, give me the gun. But dad! Or how about this? I love this, right? But dad, it was an accident. I didn't mean to shoot. My finger hit the trigger. So the bullet somehow fell into the gun. You somehow accidentally cocked it. And somehow magically your finger hit the trigger. And it accidentally happened to all line up that it hit your sister perfectly in the back. This is a miracle, son. But he understood. If he would just have done what I asked him to do, there would be no punishment. I gave him an opportunity. He didn't take it. How many of you have heard that little voice saying, don't do it? Now, here's the problem. The more you resist that voice, the quieter it gets. Talking about having a severed conscience. Come on, let's be honest. We've all been there. We don't have to look. Don't, don't look around at anybody because we've all been there. You know, the first time you do something, it's hard. Second time. Third time, by the time you get to 10 or 12 times, it's not even a blip on your radar anymore. Not even a blip. The problem with that is, some interpret that as, it's okay now. No, what that really means is, God's sort of letting you have your way. Your conscience is becoming severed in that area. You're numbing yourself to those consequences. So we begin to find that God always helps, God always gives us, always desires to give us. I don't believe that anybody will be able to truly stand before God in judgment and say, God, you never gave me an opportunity. God gives man, God gives man an opportunity. So we begin to find this begin to play out in one of the most uh, famous stories. And I say that not to be funny, it's true. I mean, even people who don't attend church, maybe people who've never been in church, if you name certain characters of the Bible, they would probably at least know a little bit of the story. I mean, David and Goliath, most people know that because it's almost become sort of a, a folklore story than it actually is a biblical story. And David versus the Goliath, the little man taking on the big man. And, and the underdog story and the ultimate deal. Now in sports, you hear people say, well, this is a really David versus Goliath matchup. They're not preaching. 
to just making a statement of comparison. And so the other story that's very famous is the fact of Noah and the flood. And this fact that, that Noah built an ark and little Noah put, had animals on this ark and Russell Crowe stood there. Uh, no, wrong Noah. Uh, that's a different Noah. Uh, had all this stuff happened. And what does this story have to do with me today? So you know, we sit here, well, let's debate if the, if, if the flood was very scientific. Did the, did, was the earth really destroyed by, 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 by flood? Whether or not you want to believe that or not, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not here today to go over the flood scientifically. Whether we believe the flood happened truly, scientifically, that's something you have to decide on your own as you study the Word of God and you have your own take. But ultimately, the flood story is not about the scientific application of today. Did the flood destroy the dinosaurs? That's on you to figure out. Because ultimately, the flood story was bigger than just simply where the dinosaurs went. T-Rex floating away. The, 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 the flood story gives us another huge insight. And I would say today that the flood story is probably the most relevant aspect of Genesis to today. And we'll see that in just a moment. So let's go back here just a moment and look at some scripture to remind ourselves. Genesis chapter 6 verse number 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And the and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man upon the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air. For I'm sorry that I made them. So God was going to send judgment. We find that God had desired to send judgment because man had determined in his heart through his own will that he was going to do evil continually. Verse number 8 says this, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. But here's the key. This is the big deal. Noah walked with God. Notice this. It gives us a little insight there. The words of the Bible are not by mistake. It didn't say God and Noah knew God. Noah walked with God. There's a difference between knowing God and walking with God. I know you, but I walk with my wife. Difference. Because that term walking connotates that Noah had a daily step-by-step relationship with God. Not just knowledge of who God was. So here's what happens. God determines judgment. But remember, what is the principle of God? God always gives what? Plan of escape. God always gives an out. So what was the out? We find the out. God said to Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth from the planting destruction. However, we begin to find verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence through through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now here's the key. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you should make it. Notice this is very specific, and here's the reason why we'll get to it in a moment. And this is how you should make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, 
its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window of the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark to its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And verse 19. And every of the living, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and the animals after their kind, and every creepy thing after of the earth after its kind. I'm okay with the animals. I'm not sure about the creepy things. Two of every kind will come to you. To keep them alive. Notice this though. Here's the key. So God says, I'm going to give judgment, but here's my way out. Now here's the key we have to understand about this story that's very, very significant. God did not turn to Noah and say, go build an ark. Well, yeah, he did. Well, he did, but you didn't. That's just part of the story. He gave him very specific instructions point by point that he had to follow. What does that mean? That God didn't give him his option or his opinion. God said, this is what I want you to do. But God, you know, can you imagine this conversation? If Noah was us, this is how the conversation would have gone. Seriously. Let's just be honest, okay? Here's how the conversation would have gone. Joel, this is God. Hey, God, how are you doing today? Um, I'm going to destroy the earth. Okay, God, that's a problem because I'm on the earth. Don't worry, Joel, I got you covered. I want you to build an ark. Okay, God, I'll go build an ark. Wait a minute, Joel, one second. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark that's 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 25 cubits high. God, um, real quick. That's a lot. Um, let, hey, let's make it like 200 cubits. Uh, and like, uh, how about 30 cubits wide and maybe like 15 cubits tall? Because you're asking me to do a lot of work. Could we just make it a little easier? I got three boys. That's all we got. You're expecting me to build a, a, an ark that Three decks? What's wrong with one deck? And God says, okay, Joe, do all that, and I want you to cover it with pitch. Okay, I'll look, I'm doing the 300 cubit thing. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. 500 cubit thing, 25. I'll do the three decks. But do you know how big and how much pitch and how much I'm going to have to do to get that whole thing covered? And God looks at me and says, Joe, you're right. You're, you're right. Don't worry about it, buddy. You know what? Just do your best. Don't worry about it. You just do what you're comfortable doing and don't worry about it. Right? That's the way God should do it, correct? Joe, Joe what, is 300 cubits a little big for you? Listen, if, you get a, if it's a little hard, you can knock some, some different things off. Listen, I know the pitch thing is asking a lot. It's sticky, it's smelly, it's got all over your hands. Listen, if you don't get around to doing it, don't worry. Just skip that part. Ooh, boy. thought we were talking about an ark. You don't need to do that. Don't worry about it. The problem is with that, guess what? It looks good when there's no rain. 
It looks good when there's no water. It looks good when there's no flood. However, not to get into science, but naval engineers have taken the dimension of the ark and have put it all together and know that the ark is perfectly proportioned to be an extremely well-balanced, seaworthy vessel. What if he had said, I don't want to make it three, I want to make it two. What if I don't want to do this? He would have taken something God intended to save him and it would have ended up destroying him. There's no shortcuts in God, folks. But God, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. Well, you know what it does? What would you like to do? No parent goes up to the child and says, okay, here's, what, here's the rules in the house. And the child says, I don't want to do that. And the parent, a good parent, doesn't look at the child and go, you know what? You're right. You're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. What do you want to do, son? Shoot your sisters? Go have fun. Fire away. We've got insurance. We'll go to there. It's no problem. Take an eye out. Who cares? No. God doesn't operate like that. And you know what today, can I be honest with you? We're all building an ark. You're building your vessel of deliverance. I'm building an ark, you're building an ark. The question is, whose instructions are you following? I love Legos. I, I, I was a kid, I love Legos. And now it's cool because my kids are getting the Legos, so it's an excuse for me to play with Legos even though I'm a, man, I'm a grown man. My, my wife took my two girls out of town during the summertime. My son was here. And I'm like, and, and was sort of a little selfish. I'll admit, I'm like, hey, let's go buy some Legos. I'll buy them for you. He's like, yes. Went and buy, I got this Batman car. It's like this cool Batman car. And he's like, we take it home. He's like, can we put it together? I was like, listen, buddy, it's a little hard for you. Let daddy do it and you can play with it. I'm like, this is great. This is awesome. My wife's like, did he put that together? I'm like, oh, no, honey, it was way too hard for him. And I did it. He's over there going, I wanted to do the vibe. I'm like, son, it's too easy. Daddy helped you. Like, mm, let's go buy some more Legos. But it's weird you got all these Legos. And I, in the beginning of the Lego build, it looks like, you know, you see the cool Batman car. It's got all these cool things. And it opens up, and you get the little Batman that comes out. And it has all these cool little angles. It's an awesome deal. But at the beginning of the car, you're doing stuff. It's like... This makes no sense. It doesn't look like the Batman car. Why am I putting this piece here and this piece here and this piece here? None of them make sense until I get to the end and realize if I wouldn't have done that step, I wouldn't be able to put the cool wing thing because the cool wing thing connects to this piece that's connected all the way down in the inside of the whole Lego deal that if I wouldn't have put in the beginning, I have no way to insert it now. I wouldn't find that out to the end. God forbid we get to the end and we stand before God in judgment when the world is finally to the point and we go, oh my goodness, I missed some major steps in the beginning of this. Yeah, can you imagine? It took that fellow 120 years. 120 years. 120 years to build a boat. Not five, not 10, not 20. 100, I'm not having the same job for 120 years with no 401k. That's a lot of work. My goodness. I don't think he had sick days. I don't think there was much going on. 401k, and he couldn't have a snow day because it had no water on the earth. That's two, 120. Brother Ingram, you're a painter. Can you imagine painting for 120 years? 
120 years of building a boat. That's crazy to me. That's a lot of effort. And I can't imagine how much it took on the pitch job. There's a fellow, I believe it's in Kentucky. I don't know if you've seen this. I believe it's called the Ark Experience. Anyone seen that? This guy built an actual scale replica of the Ark. Like this is a huge tourist thing now. It'd be cool one day to go to it, but it's this replica of the Ark. And that thing is massive. It didn't have Home Depot, didn't have Lowe's, didn't have, it was just him. Imagine the nasty, yucky stuff trying to go put all this pitch on by hand. How much all that would have just got all over you. You get tree sap on you. It takes an, 10 days to get it off. But pitch, tar, this stuff? But why? That's what God said. That's what God said. That's what God directed. Why? Because we find something in the story of Noah that teaches us the three aspects that are so important in God's salvation. Grace, faith, and obedience. In salvation, the most important elements we find is grace, faith, and obedience. What is grace? We talked about this before, but let's remind again. What is grace? Grace is God's favor. Grace is when you receive what you don't when, when you receive what you don't reserve, deserve. It's a gift. His favor towards us causes him to initiate something to help us. No human effort can earn salvation or be made right unless God initiates it. So grace becomes a part of God's plan. How do we do this? Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So our salvation process begins with grace. Hebrews twelve fifteen in the New Living Testament says this, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. So we find that grace is the first element. The second element, faith. Faith is what? When we believe the word of God in what it tells us to be true and instructs us regarding God's way, the root word for faith in the Greek means to persuade, to trust, to have confidence in. So what is this? Grace is God's part. Faith is our response to God's grace. But the attitude of faith is something that cannot be seen with the human eye. So how can we tell if we have truly possessed faith? Faith is not something that can be quantified through the human eye simply by saying, I have faith. So what does James tell us? James is very clear because James says this. James 2 verse 18 in the New Living Testament says this. Now someone may argue. Some people have faith. Others have good deeds. But I say to you, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. I say it this way. Actions speak louder than words. We can't just talk the talk. We got to walk the walk. So what do we have? Grace. God's initiated Response to us. 
Faith, our response back to God's grace. But what is faith? Faith leads us to obedience. Because obedience becomes the proof of our faith. When we receive God's gift, we receive it by responding in faith and obedience. But let's finish here. I've got just a few minutes left and I want to just show you something because this word is going to come back later on as we get into this and is this. At the end of the story in Genesis, we find that God, uh, we find the ark finally rests on the mountaintop. The water recedes finally and Noah and his family is able again to uh, leave the ark And we find that in verse number 1 of chapter 9, this is the statement that is made. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as we begin to read through this, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read through it. If you get notes, you can read through it yourself. We find that God begins to make, and here's the word I want you to know today. God begins to make a covenant. Everybody say covenant. God begins to make a covenant with man. You say, well, what is a covenant? I don't know what that word is. What is a covenant? We know what the word contract is. We've heard the word contract from a legal standpoint, or or we, we use the word contract in some connotations. But what is the word covenant? Is a covenant a contract? Is a contract a covenant? So let me give you a quick comparison between a contract and a covenant. The Bible did not say that God made a contract with man. The Bible specifically said that God made a covenant with man. So let's look at the comparable of the difference, and you'll get this in your notes. Uh, There's a chart here that compares a contract and a covenant. So look, look at, we'll go through these point by point. A contract is an obligation I have to. But a covenant is an opportunity that I want to. A contract is impersonal. It involves something I have to do. But a covenant is personal because it involves something that I am. A contract is conditional. If you do your part... I will do my part. But a covenant is unconditional. I'll do my part whether you do yours or not. A contract has leverage. I look out for my own best interest. But a covenant is loyalty. I'm looking out for your best interest. A contract is suspicion. I want assurance that you will do your part. Man, have you ever read, have you ever signed a contract... There's all kinds of things in there that is assuring you will do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and all of the other letters in the alphabet. But a covenant is built on trust. A contract is built on compromise. I'll meet you halfway. We're in the process right now trying to sell our house. Before we signed a contract, we were going back and forth. And eventually, we found a common ground. Because usually in a contract, it usually revolves around finding some kind of commonality. But a covenant... It's not about compromise. A covenant is about sacrifice. That's why you don't really get into a marriage contract. You get into a marriage covenant. Because a marriage contract says, I'm coming halfway. But a covenant of marriage says, I'm coming all the way. 
Too many people have approached marriage as a contract, but marriage in God's eyes is a covenant, meaning it's not a 50-50 deal. 50-50 marriages fail. The only marriages that succeed are 100 to 100. I'm giving you everything, you give me everything. Because if I've given you 50-50, that sounds right, 50-50 make a whole. Actually, 50 and 50 make 100, and you need 200. So you're 100 short. Contract is temporary, but a covenant is permanent. So why do we use the word covenant? Because God covenant best describes God's relationship towards us. So God saved man by establishing a covenant. So we get here to this end, and let's look as we finalize today in the last uh, three minutes, because this is very key. I said it earlier that Noah's story is probably the most relevant to us today. You say, wait a minute, that, that story happened thousands of years ago. Here's why. Let's look at the comparison. The days of Noah, the Bible said there's great wickedness. Before the coming of Christ, the Bible says evil men and seducers. I don't think there's anybody in here today that would argue with me that our world is evil. That's not a political statement. That's not a, that's not a, a statement of religious statement. That's just a fact. And if you don't believe that, turn on the news. Our world is evil. Nobody can set up a, a, a sniper position over a crowd of people and unleash bullets if there's not evil in the world. In the days of Noah, the Bible says the earth was full of violence. And the, before the coming of Christ, the Bible says the earth is going to be perilous, meaning full of violence. Before, in the days of Noah, the Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In the coming of Christ, the Bible says the gospel will be preached all over the world. In the days of Noah, we find the ungodly were punished by the flood. But in the coming of Christ, the ungodly will be punished by fire. We begin to see there's a comparison. What is the comparison? The comparison, God showed up to Noah and said, I'm going to do, destroy the world by a flood. You're talking about a man who never seen rain. So I want, gonna store, I'm going to destroy the earth by a whatchamacallit. And I want you to build a dumaflagit. And I want you to put all your whatchamacallits on there. That's about as clear as it was to Noah. Because that's how strange it was. And how crazy was it was for someone to spend 120 years building something... And everyone said, what are you wasting your time? Why are you here on a Sunday morning at 945, Super Bowl Sunday, get your popcorn ready, it's a big day. Why are you here today? Because I'm trying to build an ark. Why am I here today? Why am I at church? When our world's telling us we're wasting our time, go do something else. There's so much you can be doing today. You can be home today. You can be doing other things. Why are we here today? There was nobody forcing you to be here, but I've come to build an ark. Because I believe what the word of God says. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. And I believe that there's a judgment coming one day. And I want to make sure that I've got an ark that's prepared for what's coming. And the problem is, if Noah would have waited around and said, Okay, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to build an ark. But when I see the first raindrop, that's when I'm going to do it. And the raindrop hit Noah on the nose. And Noah said, Oh my goodness, Sham, Japheth, let's go get some wood. Let's start building an ark. Baby, it's too late. Wait a minute. 
God, if you would have just given me a sign, I gave you a sign. I told you my word, and my word never comes back to me void. So if you want a sign, I gave it to you, my word. I don't have to have a raindrop on your nose to prove to you I'm true. My word is true because I'm God and I never lie. So that's the proof you need. The proof is there's coming a day. The question is, what are you and I going to do about it? And what are you and I going to do about it? I'm going to get some pitch and I'm going to get some gopher wood and I'm going to look at my 300 cubits, my 50 cubits, my 25 cubits and every day in this life, I'm going to put one more log on another. I'm going to put one more pitch on the outside because I'm preparing an ark. Why? Because there's coming a day when the rain's going to start to fall and those of us that have built an ark, we're going to go in the ark and say, thank God that I had the faith and the obedience to get in the ark when everybody on the outside saying, why are you leaving us here? Because I built an ark. Built an ark. Built an ark. So the argument today is not the if, it's simply the when. It's a guarantee because God said it and God doesn't lie. The question is, what are you and I going to do about it? We've got to build an ark. We've got to build an ark God's way, the way God intended it. Why? Because when the world begins to rain, I want to have a place that God built that I can run into. The Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it are safe. I want to get in that name. I want to establish myself in that name. Praise God. Amen.